0: So, Guy, Nick Mason, Sourceful of Secrets,
1: of which we are um, two-fifths, right? Are, we're going back out on the road in the summer across the UK. We
2: are. We're, it's all of June, so brace yourself. What's it called? It's called the Set the Controls Tour. What a brilliant name. Who do you uh, think could have come up with such a great name for a tour, Gary? I
1: wonder. I think yeah. I'm looking at him, right? But then You're I like, did come up with uh, Nick Mason, Sourceful of Secrets. You did, and in fact, that came up in a
2: podcast then because you were inspired by Woody Woodman's U-boat, weren't you? I was, yes.
1: Anyway, anyway but enough of that. So... Join Nick, Guy, Lee Harris, uh, Don Beacon, and me as we celebrate the early years with, you know, that incredible, it's an incredible body of work, isn't it? The early Pink Floyd. It goes up to, just before Dark Side of the Moon. It goes up to 1972, Meta.
2: with all the film soundtracks, all the Sid stuff, stuff you've never yeah. heard. Stuff that no one's ever Echoes, heard, frankly. Echoes, obviously. Echoes is the big sort of, you um, know, uh, what is that? What would you call it? Magnum Opus. Yeah, I love a Magnum, don't you?
1: Yeah, I never met Magnum. was <laughs> Um, anyway, tickets are on sale now, and you can buy yours at uh, myticket.co.uk.
2: And Kilimanjaro Live presents Nick Mason's Sourceful of Secrets: The Set the Control Tour. Hello, Gary.
1: Hey, Guy. How are you?
2: Uh, good. Very, very excited about this one. Big one, man. Who produced that record?
1: Yes. Shall tell me the. Uh... My Generation record. But, of course, he kicked off with You Really Got Me with The Kinks and sort of set the template for a particular sound of beat groups and certainly of distorted guitar riffs.
2: Yeah, and actually a band who weren't that big, The Creation, but who actually shaped the 90s guitar band sound.
1: Yeah, like the Oasis and bands like that, of course. Yeah. So just to tell our audience, in case you don't know who Sheltami is, You Really Got Me all the day, all the night, tired of waiting for you. Set me free, a well respected man, dedicated follower of fashion, sunny afternoon, dead end street. I can't explain anywhere. I mean, you know, he produced all of these. We yeah. wouldn't be here, guy, would we? No, it's true. It's true. And when we
2: want to find where he went, I'm very, very excited. Let's get him on.
1: Welcome to The Rock on Tour.
3: Okay, guys, I'm ready.
2: This was great, guys. I, I, it's so great to talk to two guys that have done this.
3: That's a big tune, for sure. I actually wrote that
2: originally for Tina Turner. Of
3: course, I had gone and found Johnny Mitchell down in Florida and brought her back. You know, what people forget about Bowie is that he was such a kind man. I've listened to a few of
1: them and they've been really good, man. I'm Sitting in the back of the car coming into London, they're brilliant. I know you're musicians, but you've been more professional than a lot of journalists. Remember me? I'm in a band now. <laughs> it's called Roxy Music. You know this thing about the 10,000 hours of experience oh, yeah, to get two good things, at yeah. something? When we recorded Arnold Lane, we'd done about 50 hours. The
2: Rock Hunters Podcast with Gary Kemp and Guy Pratt.
1: There you go. There we are. Shell, you're looking very cool. What a pleasure to meet you, sir.
3: I apologize in advance for my. Allergy voice because this has been the worst allergy season in LA's history that I'm aware of. So um, very healthy except for my allergy. <laughs> Anyways, great, nice great. to talk to you
1: guys. Okay, show. I'm Gary. Yeah. This is Guy. Where are you? Where are you, show? Whereabouts We're are you? We're in LA,
3: Studio City. Yeah, if you know. Studio City.
1: Yeah, I used to live in LA for a few years. Oh, did you? Okay, or...
3: yeah. No, we um, we have a house. Here on Studio City, we lived in the hills for 20 more years. Jan is a major gardener, so we finally got a house with a, a huge spot for her to do her gardening. Beautiful. So.
1: show! absolute privilege to have you on. You created, really for us guys, the sound of British pop music.
3: Well, thank you for that. I'm not sure that's totally accurate, but I certainly did my best coming from um, L.A., where... You know, I think, you know, I started out as a recording engineer and I spent a lot of time at the studio figuring out how to mic various instruments, how to isolate them and all that kind of stuff. So that's what I actually brought with me to London when I went. And um, it looks like it paid off, which is nice.
2: Well, <laughs> you were the first person to use tons of microphones on the drums.
3: Yes, yeah because i always wanted control of, of every piece of drum equipment and at, at that point in time both there and here uh, everybody was using like three or four mics i thought that's really not good enough so i worked out i used 12 without them phasing which is what the first thing i was told when i brought it to uh, london was that uh, you can't do that because all the mics will phase. i said well i guess you just have to listen so, you know, a month later, everybody was trying to use 12 mics.
1: <laughs> but it's true what Guy says. I mean, this, your drum sound, mm-hmm. you know, on people like Keith Moon was incredible. I mean, you look at a track by The Creation. Uh, how, how does it feel? Yeah. I mean, that drum kit. I mean, Jimmy Page could only have dreamt <laughs> of that later on. No drums had ever sounded like this before.
3: Well, thank you. I, I appreciate that because uh, I was always very intense on getting the best possible sounds I could get. And if, it, if I succeeded, then I'm extremely pleased.
2: These were tiny desks back then, right? We're talking about sort of three, if you were lucky, four-track
3: machines. Comparatively speaking, yeah, sure. I don't want to
2: get too technical for our listeners, but just having enough, the channels to put all mm. those mics in,
3: <laughs> must have been a challenge. The studio I, I was in had a method of chaining another right. bunch of um, of inputs. So that, you know, we're able to get all that together. Right.
1: What was the beginning for you, Shell, getting into being an engineer? What 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 encouraged you to do that? Were you a musician? Because I know you've written some songs.
3: No, I, I'm, I'm not. I play guitar, but I'm a good enough producer not to ever want to record myself as a guitarist. <laughs> I uh, <laughs> I guess it goes, really, goes back to when I was 13 and I think it's fair to say a smart-ass kid in school and a teacher sent in Uh, sorry
2: if i can stop you there you were appearing on a quiz show when you were a kid right yes it
3: it was called the quiz kids right and um and i loved the the whole idea of it but even then i wanted to be behind the camera instead of in front of it but that, that was the turning point for me in terms of um Selecting showbiz as a career, because just to follow up on
1: that, you've got one of this incredible high IQ, haven't you, Show? You're you're part of a group of people above the ninety nine point yeah. nine <laughs> percentile of yeah, the rest of the human
3: they're, race. they are called the Triple Nine Society, and uh, yeah, it is a high IQ organization, and uh, I find it extremely interesting to be part of it. And uh, the members are all separated truly around the world, so. Very seldom do we ever get together and meet each other. So, usually by either email or I guess Zoom now, although I haven't done that yet.
2: Are you sort of like the Avengers? Do you sort of look down on the rest of <laughs> we
3: poor humans? I have never looked down on anybody who did not deserve to, have to be looked down upon.
1: So, there's a story about you coming to England with a load of records of acetates that you didn't actually yeah. produce and being told.
3: Is that true? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Actually, it was only two acetates. My friend Nick Vinay was uh, an A&R at Capitol Records. And uh, I told him I was going for five weeks, which was my intention, to London so I could see some of that and some of uh, Paris before life passed me by. And I said, be nice if I could work for a couple of weeks so they didn't have a whole lot of money. And he said, here, take my acetates and tell you you did them.
2: One of those was the Beach Boys, right? I mean, yeah. that's a beach. Beach Boys,
3: yeah. Yes. Uh, Serpent Safari by the Beach Boys and um, uh, Lou Rawls, the name of which now escapes me. But anyway, two great records. And uh, when I met with Dick Rowe at the Decca after hearing him he said you start today so <laughs> so that's how all that came about
1: What music was going on at that time I mean because we've got to try and find the landscape of music before you really got me came along you know the sound of the sound of pop what was inspiring you and what were you hating
3: uh, I think I got inspired by r and early ish on when I heard G by the crows. And that kind of put me in the right direction of things I wanted to hear. And I listened to a lot of music on the radio at that point in time. Or you might remember, since you lived in L.A., there was a place here called Music City that had a bunch of booths. And uh, you could go visit the booths and take out records and listen to them before you bought them. Well, I used to go out and listen to them and then buy them. <laughs> but uh, I didn't have any, you know, this as a kid at that point. I've always been interested in music. I've always liked Music. I used to buy a, kind of a crummy little weekly, you want know to call it newspaper. It just really wasn't. It was on the worst kind of paper, but they had lyrics printed to all the songs. Oh, yeah, so yeah. I probably seriously know lyrics to hundreds of songs because of that.
1: I suppose the Beatles were, were beginning to happen, and that was beginning to the sound of British beat music was filtering through
3: to you. Well, the Beatles didn't really get started till I got to London. In fact, I, I've always said that if I had gone uh, two months before I actually got there, that maybe I would have been at DECA when uh, they appeared and uh, were, were turned down. And because uh, I certainly wouldn't have turned them down. I, I heard the acetate of um, what was played when they went to go see Dick Rowe at DECA. And um
1: Sorry, Dick Rowe famously turned down the Beatles, didn't
3: he? Well, but which is not true. It but it really was. He that that's a bad rap. Okay, he did not turn it on. He had his number one A and R guy it gave him the choice between the Beatles and and I forgot the other name of the the other band. Though, who he chose and it had a couple of you know small hits, but uh, nothing like the Beatles. So it was not dick rose Hall.
1: what was the first big record that you produced you, you got him to do in the bachelors didn't you at the beginning
3: the, the bachelors was the first one yeah you know. i think in retrospect they're probably testing me when I, in that they gave me three irish harmonica players which is what they were and was how they had appeared prior to them signing with deca and me getting them and so i had to rehearse them i and i had a little tiny flat in london and um rehearsed them in my flat for five or six weeks and uh chose who was going to be the lead singer and how they should do harmonies and all that kind of stuff and then the first session we did was um charmaine Charmaine, yeah 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 and um i did it at olympic and it took no time at all because we were, we were well rehearsed and <laughs> i said to Keith. uh I think what I just did—I kind of hate because it's pseudo country music. <laughs> well, little did I know. So, what, anyways, what, yeah. what
1: was a producer in your mind? What what at that point, you know, was it someone who suggested musical arrangements? Because like George Martin? No,
3: no, no. I, I the studio I worked for was Conway Studio here. It was the original Conway Studios, and Julian was who was English, by the way, owned the studio, and uh, he had worked at IBC. And when we discussed producing, and I always had an impression that a producer should be a hands-on producer, which is what I chose to be in which I still am, and that I'm, I'm really there from the beginning, you know choosing the artist, uh, choosing the material, working out the arrangements with the band uh, uh, continuing through you know to you know, mixes and mastering. So apparently what I know for a fact from, some of the people I speak to, it's kind of a dying art to be a hands-on producer. There's a lot of producers who think that checking in once a week is really the cool thing to do. I don't look at it that way.
1: We have to talk about the kinks because this is your first sort of yeah. major record, but and there's so much myth and legend that surrounds that first single. You really got me, and especially in the guitar sound. But was this a band that was presented to you, or did you go and see them live? And what were they like? No,
3: I was. Actually, in Denmark Street, visiting some publisher friends of mine, we were going to have lunch. Tin Pan Alley, as it was known. Yes, Tin Pan Alley, right. Yeah. And Robert Weiss, one of the managers, walked in with an acetate of the kinks, and uh, I was in the lobby, and he said, anybody here would like to listen to this? And I said, well, I'm here, I'll listen. So I did, <laughs> and uh, liked a lot of, about what I heard, and eventually I, I took them into pie. And got him signed.
1: I understand you really got me. It was a very different version because Ray wrote it on the piano, didn't he?
3: He wrote most everything on the piano. Yeah, you know, at least originally. I I think he did switch off from time to time, but he wrote stuff at home. So I, you know, I wasn't privy to how he we went about it. But mainly piano, I think, is what he used.
2: But what's interesting is that for someone who's known for this incredible catalog of fabulously whimsical sort of pastoral songwriting, that he basically invented heavy rock as we know it with this sort of little batch of songs. I don't think
3: he started out thinking that way, or did I? The fact that it turned out that way was, I think, a surprise for all of us. And the fact that it's continued to last is also a very nice surprise.
2: So do you think much of that could have been to do with you, Shell, knowingly or unknowingly?
3: Uh, Well, I got a figure that I had a damn good part of it. I mean, yes, I was the producer. I was a hands-on producer. I had worked out how to do drums and and lots of other sounds, including guitars. And uh, so I guess, yeah, I'm as responsible as Reyes for writing a great song. But but
1: I guess that's guitar sound, which is seminal now, you know, the Dave Davis guitar sound, which, you know, the fifth's you know you can follow the seam that goes on from there through punk and through all kinds right. of heavy rock and oasis nineties whatever well, the
2: torn speakers wasn't it was, that was the the thing. sound
1: we are told yeah. through myth it was where the uh, the speakers were slashed yeah. were you in the room when those speakers got slashed and tell me the truth what is the real <laughs> well, story it, it
3: was um, i think it was called an El pico amp, and uh not only were the were the uh was it slashed but uh, David definitely suggested as we walk by, we could give it a kick or two. So uh, <laughs> it uh, it developed its own sound, and I did chain it to an AC30. Ah, and uh, you like your chaining, uh, don't you? And right. Yes. Well, if it, it, it works, yeah. It, you know, it was...
1: was that the first distorted guitar sound on record? Is can we just have that as a definitive yes or no? Or... You
3: know, I, a lot of people say it is. I I, I can't come one way or the other. I don't know it's certainly among the first let's put it that way
2: and of course there's the question of the other musicians who were there
3: the other musicians who also were terrific yes yeah
2: we know he didn't do the solo we know he didn't do the solo we know that we're not going to ask jimmy
1: you that page question. we're talking about he
3: finally admitted that he didn't do the solo uh, why he even said he never did i've never understood in fact he wasn't even on that session so i employed him for the the album because ray wanted to concentrate on singing and not playing rhythm guitar So I employed him as a a rhythm guitarist for the album.
1: Okay, we're just going to hold there for a second, because I think, you know, you you, you are the touchstone here. You know, you've got Ray Davis and Jimmy Page in the room. No one knows who Jimmy Page is really outside of the studio world. What was Jimmy like as the session player?
3: Oh, Jimmy was great. No, I I found him when he was about 17, and... um, he didn't read music then, so, I mean, my, my early memories of him when I booked him on sessions was in between takes, he was practising how to read music. So, <laughs> no, he, he's an extraordinary guitarist, no question. Do
2: you know what? I had a funny thing. I worked with Jimmy many times over the years, but I did a project with him with David Coverdale, and when we were rehearsing yeah. for the shows, we had, did all these Zeppelin songs and all their songs, and then there was yeah. going to be a load of White Snake stuff, and I remember thinking, how the hell is Jimmy going to learn all this stuff? And of course, he had it in a second, because of course, he's the session dog. And it was, you know, it's like, and it's never leaves you. <laughs> yeah,
1: he was He was very quick. Uh, just while we're on Jimmy, and I know we'll come back to Jimmy later when we do yeah. talk about The Who. Everyone thinks that Jimmy was the first guy to pick up a bow and to bow the guitar. But actually, it, it was... He didn't it do that. Was Eddie he didn't Fi- do that It was Eddie Phillips, no. right? Um,
3: that's Eddie Phillips, absolutely.
1: From the creation. Yeah.
3: Uh, and Jimmy... No, I won't use the word stole. Let's say borrowed, <laughs> and he started using it.
2: All artists steal, don't they? Was then they say average artists borrow, great artists steal.
1: Yes, of course, of course. But was Jimmy <laughs> in the room when Eddie Phillips from the Creation was bowing away one day, and
3: when? No, he wasn't on those sessions at all.
1: All right, they're great records, by the way. The Creation, I know that that comes a little bit later. But, I mean, Making Time and Painter Man, I mean, they're just... I mean, as Guy was saying to me earlier, you know, this is the 90s. Oasis wouldn't have existed,
3: would they, Guy?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. But, in fact, you know, Alan McGee named his
3: label after them. uh, They were one of my very favourite bands, and my major regret is that right after I made a deal with Ahmed Erdogan at Atlantic to sign them for Atlantic, to make them the superstars they deserve to be. They broke up and I could not keep them together.
1: Wow.
3: But (laughs) but what
1: was Ray like? And how was your, because Ray is, is, you know, I mean, listen, he's famously difficult. Everyone knows that. And Dave and Ray don't get on very well. And I think Dave was furious for a long time that Ray said he was there when, and he was inspirational in slashing those speakers and he, whatever. But how was it for you dealing with very difficult at times, you know, sensitive artists?
3: Well, I think I treated each one like that as, as well as I could, because they all differed from each other. Ray could certainly be difficult. Basically, I really never had a, a problem with him while recording. When he and they and would get at it on a session, I'd um, take all the other guys and we'd go out to have some coffee, you know, so <laughs> come back when uh, hopefully there wasn't a lot of blood to clean up. <laughs> so <laughs> Ray was fine. I, I, Ray is notional. I think is maybe the best way to put it. Depends what kind of mood he's in. That's
2: a brilliant much he can be brilliant
3: really. Word. He could be really good, and he could be just the opposite.
1: Is it time for the Who? Well, I think I just want to keep on a little bit on Kings. I tell you why because there's a famous track called "See My Friends," and I was listening right. to that this afternoon, and I noticed that you know some people have said. This was the first use of Indian-style music ever in pop music. I mean, this is before George Harrison.
3: Oh, definitely before the Beatles, yeah. As far as I know, it's the first one, yeah. Yeah. The influence was that I was recording John Mark, who became part of the Mark Amon band, and uh, John was a great guitarist and excellent songwriter. He wrote a song called I Got a Long Way to Go, which was... Indian influence because he had been there and he liked the music and all that kind of stuff. And I said, would you mind if I played it for Ray? And uh, he said, no problem. So I did. And like pretty much the next day Ray came back with see my friends and um, we did not have a uh, sitar. So we detuned his guitar after rather uh, Dave's guitar and uh, that's why it, we, we got it as close as we could come to a Sithar at the time. There was no Sithar players that I knew in London. So.
1: This is an amazing guy, isn't it? I mean, because not only has Shell developed the sort of distorted guitar sound, which is one, you know, whatever the argument is, you know, people can tweet us or whatever and tell us that it's something else. But that really was the first heavy rock sound on a guitar.
2: But if the Indian thing's interesting because it was clearly in the water. Because I'm wondering how close to this time was Jeff Beck with the Yardbirds? Because he was was getting a sitar sound as well um
3: you know i don't know the answer to that you're gonna to have to do research because i really don't know
2: yeah and then dan electro came out with their uh-huh. electric sitar really quickly there was clearly something going on wasn't there
1: i think it's after yeah. that i think the yeah. jump- oh no it is after, after that
2: happened. absolutely no yeah. i'm not trying to take anything away from shell here but i'm just saying it was a th- you know it, it became such a thing
3: apparently yeah well it was it was yet another new trend that expanded you know kind of like I mean, not much later because of the fact that I did, you know, Pentangle and Roy Harper and all of the folk stuff started big time after that as well. Prior to that, it was uh, pretty much in the back. Eventually it picked up from where it was in the U.S. because in the U.S. in the mid-50s, folk was really big. And, you know, it took another, what, 10 years or more before it actually caught on in, in England, I gather. You're right. And it's very
1: connected, isn't it? Because that use of drones and, 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 and obviously there was Joe Boyd came along. Just, yeah. We're moving, we're jumping a little bit, but Joe Boyd yeah. and the incredible string band and what was coming out of, you know, the folk revival that was beginning mixed up with psychedelia. Uh,
3: that happened in the late sixties, uh, as opposed to, you know, mm. <laughs> a hell of a lot earlier. <laughs> <laughs>
1: But just, you know, going on to your folk stuff, you know, that was, you know, for you to end up doing Pentangle and and, and Roy Harper, that was the right move to make at that point. Oh,
3: uh, absolutely. No, and I I loved recording the Pentangle. They're one of the best bands musically I'd ever recorded. Every one of them was individually a soloist and a star in their own right. And the fact they all came together for uh, Pentangle was brilliant.
2: We have jumped ahead here because, Gary, wasn't there some more kink stuff you wanted to address? Well, uh, you
1: know, Uh, I think what I really wanted to ask you, Shell, is is to talk a little bit about Ray's songwriting because towards the end of your spell with Ray, you know, we move into Dedicated Follower, Sunny Afternoon, Mm -hmm. uh, Dead End Street. I mean, you were witnessing this guy's songwriting just becoming bigger and bigger. You know, so there's that to talk about. I also find extraordinary that... That in a way, a band like The Who came along and Pete Townsend and completely stole the thunder off the kinks.
3: Ray's songwriting has been phenomenal pretty much throughout. Yeah. No question. Yeah. By the way, I I think what you're intimating, what you said about his later song, like Sunny Afternoon, was that it was a different type of softer music than you really got me. That really (laughs) really started with Tired of Waiting for You, which was the third single I pulled out of it being only included in an album, and said, this has got to be a single, and of course it went to number one, which is great. So, but that was the first of Ray's songs that really got known by, you know, worldwide and by the fans, and it was the beginning of uh, what he finally wound up doing with Waterloo Sunset and Sunny Afternoon, you know, all those other things.
1: So quintessentially English as well.
3: Yes. I always said he was the commentator for for England in terms of uh, writing about everything that was happening in England, the good and the bad.
2: <laughs> I love what, because uh, Pete Townsend has his description of him is, he said, I worship, no, I exalt Ray Davis. As <laughs> well, a songwriter.
3: And good for him. You know, Pete is a good guy. Yeah. And he does acknowledge the fact that there are other people in the world besides him and and, um, and and his band, <laughs> and which is also very nice. And uh, uh, you know, Ray certainly was one of the leading ever people songwriters who who broke new ground. Yeah.
2: Now, I'm, I'm afraid that does seem to be the perfect segue, because I now want to ask: Is because apparently Pete wrote "I Can't Explain." as a direct sort of rip of You Really Got Me, so that in the hope that you would produce The Who? Uh,
3: Well, I don't think it was off of You Really Got Me, but it was... Oh, no? That's that's not what I was told, but I was told because by that time, I'd I'd already done several other things with The Kings. He did write something that he thought was a la The Kings in enough ways to get my attention, and he was absolutely correct.
1: (laughs) (laughs) How did the meeting go about between
3: you? Um, Again, this is is a backstory here. Uh, I had a a lady working for me who um, was friendly with the manager's, you know, Stamp and the other guy. I don't want to even mention his name. And, um, (laughs) uh, (laughs) uh, well, right. You don't want to ask me about him. Anyways. uh, Don't we? She was asked to ask me if I'd come and see the band. Uh so I, I said, yeah, of course, I was on the lookout for, for artists. So I went to see them at a church hall, which is where apparently where they had been rehearsing. And I walked in there and um, the first thing they played was, uh, I'm a man. And I think I heard about eight bars and said, fine, I'll sign you. <laughs> <laughs>
2: So what interests me with these bands back then, when everything's such a new world show, is that, I think I can speak for Gary here, is that when we first went into a studio, we'd had years of reading about it and studying it and had an idea of kind of what to expect from going into a studio. And so even though you're new and fresh and get everything wrong, still you know what you're building up to. With these guys, especially, you know, coming from just these high energy pub gigs, it's like. How did they adapt to this environment, which was a new environment for everyone?
3: Uh, I think the answer is extremely well. They (laughs) had been doing enough gigs, so they were not shy about trying new things. And they certainly had been playing at various clubs and uh, all that kind of thing. And I'm assuming, they well, I mean, know for a fact, they already had a ton of fans that they built up by playing gigs. So being in the studio it was it was no big deal. Uh, they knew about right. studios. I, I I presume, and I don't uh, don't know this, that they had visited studios, so it was not a totally foreign environment for oh, them. Oh,
1: that's
2: true. Yeah, they'd done. Um, I'm the
1: face. Right. So yeah. Did Pete have a studio at home then? He, did he have he demos? He did. Yeah,
3: no, he had a small studio at home. Right, he did. Yeah.
2: Because I've got to say, Shell, yeah. and I'll say this now is that the records you produced for the Who are the best sounding records they made all the way up to Who's Next. It's like they, they fell off a cliff when you went sonically. I
3: think. thank you. I totally agree with you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and uh, the reason why, as, you, as I think most people by now know, and if they don't, I'll uh, repeat quickly, is all because of good old uh, Lambert, who was was yeah. uh, jealous of the fact that I was having influence with, as he put it, his boys, quote unquote. And I've got a letter in the mail. Saying my contract was null and void, uh, which I have to say pissed me off, and I sued, of course, I won, but I was unable to ever record him again.
1: Wow, wow, well before we get to that rude moment, mm. we need to talk about the beginning with the who right, guy
2: yeah, I mean well, I want to know about the actual sessions or no kinds, but actually more importantly let's just get to the big one, my generation, the actual recording of my generation
3: well okay we'd already I'd already started with Pete on his sounds of um, distortion and all that kind of stuff. So before generation, because we'd already started with anyhow anywhere anywhere,
2: which is is that the first proper feedback on a
3: record? Yeah, I think so. I, I believe so. If not the first, it's among the first. In any event, before generation, which was the next session that I did after anyhow anywhere, I spent about three or four hours with just Pete in the studio, doing various mics and various distances and all that kind of stuff so that i was about 95 percent sure i knew exactly how to mic his guitar so we'd get you know the ultimate in terms of uh, the sound we were looking for
2: right and then and also what i because apparently there's some notes of peace because the, the one thing that always got me because you've got the most one of the most absolute most radical revolutionary punk rock things ever to happen which is the first bass solo on a pop record.
3: Uh, yeah, that, yeah, that's true, yeah. <laughs> well,
2: the one thing that never comes up is whose idea is that? And then to recently I came across the someone said there was, Pete had written notes for how the song went, was meant to go, and it just said, John Bass Stuff. Yes,
3: I, I think that's, <laughs> that's exactly the way it went. And John was, of course, an extremely good bass player, and he was an exhibitionist as well.
2: I'd argue that Substitute is a bass solo as well. I I don't know how you let him get away with where there's this sort of instrumental verse. And he clearly just turns the bass up and it's just, it's a bass solo. Yeah.
3: Did you do substitute show? Uh, Yes, yes, I did. And no, they say I didn't, but I did.
2: And the other thing, sorry, back to my generation, is is it's the Ivy League singers? Yes, Yes, it it is,
3: yeah.
1: Who were they? No, I can't explain. Was, my, any way, any yeah, was the only way, anyhow. Yeah, that's the only time Ivy I used
3: League. the Ivy League was for that. Because
2: the BVs of my generation do sound like accomplished pop backing vocals, and almost a bit incongruous.
3: I definitely say about Townsend, he was very smart, and they were pissed off that I used the Ivy League for backing vocals because they were not right. capable right. of doing it. They went out and learned how to do backing vocals. That's how that came about. But but, uh, who were they, Shell? Well, Perry Ford, and I forget the other two guys' names. But they were an established trio, had hits of of their own, and uh, did terrific harmonies. So I,
1: the question that uh, I think if we if we need to bring up Jimmy Page again, because yeah. I think <laughs> Roger <Montra> Daughtry <laughs> was, was doing some interviews recently saying it was Jimmy that had played the guitar solo on I Can't Explain. I think he said it was a can't, I Can't Explain. What's what's the truth, Shell?
3: it was not on I Can't
1: Explain.
2: <laughs> didn't he just play on the B-side? He just played on Bald-Headed Woman, didn't he? Yeah,
3: he was on the other, the other track I did, not on that one. Are you right? Because the
2: story, the old story I heard, yeah. sorry, Gary, but, uh, the old story I heard was that Pete wouldn't let Jimmy play his 12 string and so Jimmy wouldn't let Pete use his fuzz box or the other way around.
3: You know, if, if all that is true, then I honestly don't know about it. All I can tell you is that what I wanted to happen as who played what happens. <laughs> what well, I've always tried to do with any band is I always rehearsed. I've always worked out the arrangements with the band so that when we'd go into the studio, I would be shooting for knowing about 90% about what was going to happen and leaving 10% for something spontaneous that would be wonderful. Right. And I've done that from the get-go and I suddenly did it with the hoop.
1: I just think what well, must have been tricky for you as a producer, is is these massive players? These players who are such big personalities, like you've got John, who's you know unstoppable bass playing, and then Pete, obviously, and Keith. Mm. I mean, how that was exactly how was, an was awesome, it yeah. recording Keith Moon yeah. and containing him? Even
3: Keith actually was my favorite guy of the He was terrific. He was a uh, character to the least, and still, in my opinion, was the best ever rock drummer of all time.
2: But he was a child yeah, as he, well. He he worked, was, yeah, he was, like, course, he was, yeah. He was like, he was 16, 17. <laughs> butt
3: off. <laughs> uh, no, my story I, I've told several times about, about Mooney is that, you know, how wild he was when he was playing. And um, so we talked about, it, started miking drums with 12 mics. Yeah, yeah. And I went up to Mooney, I said, please do me a favor. These mics are really expensive. I don't care how close you get don't oh, effing hit him. <laughs> and he said, no problem. Uh, and he never did. He came within a millimetre or two, but he never hit a mic.
2: Because what's extraordinary about Moon, which people think is that for someone who was so just nuts and, and played the drums back to front, basically, where everyone else was the, you know, Pete was the rhythm section. Yeah, he was. Oh,
3: oh, totally. No, no question about it. Yeah, he was brilliant.
2: But Keith's actual timekeeping was incredible. His actual oh, really? strictness was, of tempo. He was a
3: great. He was a great drummer.
2: It's John who used to rush yeah. ahead,
3: not Keith. No, King. oh yeah. no, no, not at all. No, uh, Keith was a great drummer. No, no doubt about it. That's I, I, so why I keep saying it. He was the best rock drummer I've ever heard.
1: Did my generation sort of come fully formed to your ears when when they first played it, and you wherever you were, were you in a rehearsal room, church, or whatever it was? Was that the energy?
3: I, I uh, as you well you as you really. That Pete had a, a studio in his house. He came with a demo that he, he'd done of it, and uh, which is a you know, rough demo, but I heard I said, that's great, but yeah, by all means, let's get that done properly, and let's yeah. do the arrangements for it and all that kind of stuff, and that, so he then you know, went on to my usual thing of uh, rehearsing and doing arrangements. Also, because
2: the things like, had it been done for the, the fact that my generation changes key every verse, yeah. goes up a tone yeah. every verse. Was that really radical? Is that something that had been done before? Or?
3: Yeah, I think the answer is yes. I mean, tell you, I'm, yeah, things probably. modulating. Yeah, I can think of a lot of old songs that if they had some time to even tell you what songs they were, but I don't.
1: This is amazing that we can go on so long about one yeah. song, but it's such yeah. a seminal piece of work, and it's affected us yeah. all, and it's still, you know... Perfectly
3: understandable why it's going on about this one song, because it's a complete surprise to us that, certainly to me in any event, that uh, my generation became an anthem. You know, and that's not something you even think about preparing. You know, they say, oh, yeah, I'm going to record something, and it's going to be an anthem, you know, PS. Uh, yeah. yes. Yeah,
1: I mean, could you imagine if you knew when you were in recording it that people were going to be still listening to it 60 years
3: later? <laughs> uh, <laughs> I that did not cross my mind. I thought it was going to last, but not 60 years.
1: <laughs> I, I just want to ask about the famous for 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 stuttering that Roger does.
3: Uh, I can tell you about that. That was um, during rehearsal, and he did it as a joke. I said, you know what? Let's leave that in. <laughs> <laughs> Just for the hell of it, of course the BBC banned it. <laughs> but how long was it
2: banned for? It couldn't because oh, it- I, I,
3: until it became number one or something like that. I think you know. It never got to number one. It only got to number two. So number, so I two. Sorry. Exactly yeah. number two, You're quite
2: right. It's quite funny, isn't it? Because it's literally one of the ten most important records in pop history, and and it, it never. But got I don't think
1: who have ever had a number one <laughs> single, have they?
2: No, they haven't. They've never had a number one single. That's actually the, yeah. that's the highest single they've ever had. Extraordinary. Right.
3: I think you're
1: right. Yeah. Um, we, we we should move on to another great artist because you you were briefly at the very beginning of David Bowie's career, weren't you? When he was in the Manish yes. Boys.
3: David Bowie was brought to me by a good friend of mine who had. Found him, and to my office, he was 17. Who's a good friend? Will we know him? I can think of his name. Uh, I'll tell you. Um, <laughs> uh, his name was Leslie Kahn, and he was a fringe music biz guy and a kind of a hustler and all that kind of stuff. But he managed a couple of people here and there. He found David and um, brought him into me in the office because he said uh, he couldn't do anything with him recording-wise. So I, I liked. David immediately because he was brash, reminded me of me when I turned up, and it was brash on purpose. But he was brash and he was um, very smart. And uh, I heard a couple of things that he did, and I said, You know, this is great. Yeah, let's go record.
1: He he did. I pity the fool with you, didn't he?
3: he did, yeah. And
1: was that something he suggested or you? You know, I can't
3: remember who suggested it. one of where us. Where was did. your
1: office, Shell? Where was your office? I'm trying to picture Bowie walking along the street as this. My
3: office was in uh, Greek Street. Oh right,
1: right. So he may well have gone for oh, that God. coffee in in Denmark Street in that famous coffee bar just before he came to see oh,
3: you. Oh, the two the two eyes. You're talking no,
1: about? The, the, there's one that, that's still there now. Oh, in Denmark oh, Street. Oh, the bar yeah.
3: Italian. Oh yeah, yeah. Okay, there's, right. There's yeah. one
1: in there. It's an yeah. Italian name because there's a famous bit of footage that's come out of him right. walking into this place in Denmark Street recently when he was 17. Uh, I'm sure he did, yeah.
2: What's um, interesting about this whole time and the way you operated, Shell, which is the way that Gary and I know record producers is someone is like, mm. you're signed to a record label and then there's a producer who wants to produce you or you want to use this producer. You were like, what a movie producer is in that you find an act, you take them to a label... You get them to sign them, and you produce them, and it's much more kind of svengali ish
3: I'd like to call it hands-on. I mean, hands-on. Yeah, I I, I don't mean it
2: in a bad way. I just no, 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 no. no. But back,
3: I I try not to be Svengali. Back in the day, uh, you're talking about which I was an independent producer. Yeah. I not rely on somebody going and finding a deal for me. I have to go do the deals myself or find the deals myself. So that's what I did. That's what happened.
2: So, for instance, would that mean that the, the Who had a record deal because you were going to produce them?
3: No, it meant oh, okay. that I was going to go find them a record deal after that. That's I what did.
2: I mean. <laughs> so does that mean you had to put up the money?
3: I spend my own money, yes.
2: Whoa.
1: Right, I see. Wow, wow. So you, you really yeah, were yeah, at the beginning. That's, what
2: I, so that's proper producer, yeah. The record producer, as we know it now, is actually really more technically record director. They don't find the money.
3: <laughs> yeah, there's a, a lot of... Uh, record director is probably a good a, a good way to describe them. Yeah. There's a lot of so-called producers now that check in once a week with uh, whatever project they're involved yeah, in, yeah, yeah. lie down on the couch for a half hour and then leave. Uh, I don't get that, and I don't understand that, and I don't think that that's proper to call themselves producers, quite frankly, but that's my take on it. I,
1: I don't know if I'm getting everything in chronological order, but I do know you made a very significant record in David Bowie's life because he put together this great album, Pin Ups. Um,
3: oh yeah, no, he did Friday in My Mind. Friday in yeah, no. My
1: Mind was yeah. he said it was one of the great records that, when he was a kid, influenced him as a mod. And of course, you did the original Easy Beats, the Australian yeah. band, the Easy Beats. Tell us a little bit about that show.
2: Yeah, because that's, that's an amazing song. That's incredibly complex, beautiful piece of work.
3: The Easy Beats were obviously Australian, I'm sure you know. They had mm-hmm. become, in many ways, the Australian Beatles, and they really had uh, that kind of notoriety in Australia. Um, can we just break her while I get Jan to shut the clicking dog up. <laughs> Keep that He's in. He's finally doing that. Okay. <laughs> they were managed by a guy named Ted Albert who uh, was one of those uh, thank-you-dad situations. His um, daddy and uh, had a, a, one of the oldest and biggest publishing companies in Australia, uh, so he started a, quote-unquote, producing, in, in any event. The songs that they did in Australia would not have gone down in England, but they were absolutely, the, the band was, was huge in Australia, and I said, you know, including... Um, the fact that they had screaming a lot of Beatles and various items of uh, apparel tossed up on the stage, you know, like the Beatles did. <laughs> <laughs> oh, female apparel, I should have said. And, you know, they were, they were huge. Anyways, they were then brought to England. Now, their manager was a guy named Mike Vaughn, who was a very nice guy. He was a, actually started out as a real estate agent, but, uh, you know, wild about music. He heard them first and became their manager, and he's the one that got them assigned to Ted Albert. Anyways, Mike also got them a deal with United Artists. And uh, so now they come to England, and I don't know about them at this point, but I then subsequently heard and know the whole story is that Albert did several sides producing, quote-unquote, with them. And UA, not to put to the final point on it and not to be really ridiculous said not satisfactory and you're no longer the producer. <laughs> so, uh, Get me, shell, tell me. Well, then a, a PR guy I knew apparently suggested that they come and see me and and Mike Bond came and saw me and I said, sure, I'm interested as I was always interested in bands. I knew I do of the band. I didn't really hurt him. Anyways. They came in. I got on with them extremely well. We're back in Greek Street again at this point. And um, they played me stuff. And I, I really liked them. I did not like the songs. I said, what I want you guys to do, I said, I want you to go back and write songs and come up here like every Friday and play me what you've written. And we'll find a song. Well, this went on for like literally six weeks. And I kept saying, no, not good enough. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and the sixth week they came in, and the first thing they played me was Friday Night mine. I said, that's it. We're going in immediately.
1: <laughs> I mean, honestly, it's a story about like a, having a regular job on a Monday and then looking forward to Friday. But it was really, yeah. it was about them trying to write a song for you on the Friday, right? <laughs> I, knew that.
3: I knew it was a hit song the moment I heard it. I set up a session like the next few days and we went in and cut the song. And, of course, the the rest as they say, is history,
1: yeah,
2: did you have like um particular engineer you were working with, or
3: I, I worked, with, just... worked with I've worked with dozens of different engineers,
2: yeah, because then engineers came with the studio, didn't they? Oh uh, yes, they, board... they usually did, yeah,
3: yeah. First, in my mind, it was Glyn Johns at IBC
1: well, I was wondering actually, I was going to say what was your, who was your competition, and I was going to say was it Glyn Johns, but actually Glyn Johns was under you, right?
3: Well, he was my engineer. Yeah,
1: yeah. So who was your competition? Who was the other guy? Who were you up against?
3: At that point in time, Glenn was mainly an engineer, and he did start producing not long afterwards. Mickey Most, obviously. And of course. Mike, Mike Hurst, and uh, uh, who else? Um, actually, I can't think. Well, I... I can't, really can't think of anybody else because <laughs> George
1: Martin was doing a very different thing. George really, Martin
3: was a company producer, of course, and was not doing the same kind of thing. No. Mm-mm.
1: The other band that I just want to mention as well is because you you worked with Manfred Mann, didn't you? And yes, uh, semi detached suburban Mister James is a bit of a classic. Yeah, that would have been with Mike Debo, would it? Mike Dubow.
3: Mike Dabo..: Mike Yeah. Darbo. Well, that again is a back story. here. I brought two great bands in to DECA when I was, you know, sort of an independent producer for DECA only, and they turned them both down on me. And uh, I thought, well, I guess it's time for me to become an independent producer. So Manfred went away, of course, they then had Do Why Diddy. And uh, then when the lead singer left the band and uh, they thought their life was over and everybody said, you know, Manfred Man is now gonna disappear. And they they took on Mike Dabo. So Jerry Braun, the manager, came and saw me. And he said, would you like to now produce them independently? Uh, I said, absolutely. (laughs) So that's how we got started. Then uh, we went to Phillips. Or rather, he used the studio at Phillips. And um, Phillips, I think, signed them. Yeah, they did, of course. Just Like a Woman was the first um, Dylan song that we did. Oh, right. And Manfred was, and I believe still is, a major Dylan fan. And right after that, was was uh, semi-detached.
2: Yeah, it's, cause it's funny with his Dylan thing, because he then went on to be an early supporter of Springsteen, wasn't he? He was kind of ahead of the curve on yeah, that. Oh, I, yeah, he
3: was, yeah, absolutely, yeah.
1: When did your time in the UK come to an end and why, Shelton?
3: I left in 1979. I'd been there for 17 years. And uh, quite frankly, by the mid-70s, I was pretty burned out and doing a whole bunch of other different things. And I probably, in fact, definitely should have gone back to L.A. at that point, but I hung on another four or five years and you know, came back in 1979.
2: You were in London when punk happened. And it's your records that were the kind of the blueprint for that. You know, my generation, and, and you really got me, that's the stuff that was still cool Shell did throughout. The Damned.
3: I did a punk band, yeah. oh, Of course you did The yeah. Damned, didn't you? Uh, sorry, sorry. You know, and uh, no, I, I didn't want to condemn it. Uh, so I thought, this know, sure, I'll, I will take them on and do one. They're really nice guys. I got on with them extremely well. We did those two sides, and I believe they've become classics. So I'm told.
2: <laughs> yeah, of course, of course. Sorry, I can't, I can't believe I missed that. What
3: was the key track you did? Uh, uh, sick did you... of being sick, or something like that? I think it was. Yeah. It Was one of them, and yeah. I forget what they are. It was called. I mean, excuse, you know, we're talking about fifty <laughs> years. So give me a break. <laughs> uh, <well.
2: laughs> What were you coming back to, Shell, when you came back to L.A.? Did you have a sort of plan?
3: No, uh, nothing in particular. I just thought it was time to come back. I thought, yeah, I certainly could do more stuff. But I was still kind of burned out. In fact, I was. I came back and I got into things like more to do with books. And I got involved with finance, you know, stock market and all that kind of stuff. And it wasn't until actually several years later I got back into doing something.
1: Did you find that people wanted you to do you 10 years before? That you weren't allowed to move on as a producer and explore different sounds? The bands were coming to you now and said, I really want it to sound like you did in the 60s.
3: Well, I got a lot of that, but I pretty much said, you're going to get what I think is going to be really good if you want me to do it, then i will do what i do you know if you want a specific sound that's a throwback to something then i probably not the guy you want
2: do you still mic up drums the way you used to oh absolutely <laughs> yeah.
1: it seems to me Shell, is that you're a song man you know you're you're a song yeah. producer you know because you look at your list look at your cv
3: i've said ad nauseum that everything starts with the song it, I've also been quoted as saying that, that a, a lousy band will have a hit with a great song, but the reverse of that is not true. So <laughs> a great band with a lousy song, forget it. Not going to happen.
1: I'm talking to our listeners now. You can uh, stay in touch with Shell and see what he's up to. He's got Instagram, haven't you? You're fully
3: social media, Shell. You've got your website. Facebook in particular. I've been writing vignettes of everybody I've produced and, and some rock history and, and items, things that happened during my musical career and all that kind of stuff on Facebook. I've been doing it for a year and a half now. And um, as a matter of fact, the current one out right now is about the Easy Beats follow-up to Friday Brilliant. in My Mind.
1: Brilliant. Uh, do you ever hear from Pete and Ray? And-
3: uh, not really, no. Um, Pete and I communicate every now and then, but not often.
2: Did your relationship suffer because of the kit thing?
3: Uh, it's certainly soured, I think is probably yeah. a good way to put it. Pete was always was cool. I had no problem with him whatsoever. And same thing with Wood Mooney. Thank you so much for coming on, Joe. It's my pleasure. But out of curiosity, are you guys still doing gigs, by the way, or not?
2: We're coming to America uh, next month.
3: Are you? All right. You yeah. kept coming to L.A.?
2: We're coming to LA, yes, and we would love to invite you if you've... No, no, to I, no it's fine. Where are you playing at, you
3: know?
2: <laughs> We're playing the Orpheum on the 18th of February.
3: Uh-huh I can't remember where the Orpheum is. is, that downtown? We'll get in touch. We'll, we'll get in t- touch. yeah. We'll
2: Okay. It doesn't matter. If it's Ooh. in LA, it's 30 miles from wherever anyone is. Everything
3: is. <laughs> One thing's okay. for
1: sure you can't walk, right? Yeah.
3: <laughs> okay, well, anyways, I'd be delighted to meet you in person and all that kind of stuff. And we can, I'm sure yeah, we can arrange it. It's, it's a great
1: honor having you on. You know, it's, really, s- really, really it's has amazing been to talk about some of those great records brilliant. you've made. Thank you, yes. Cheryl. And uh,
2: yeah, thank you on behalf of the world for your contribution.
3: <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. It's very flattering. Thank you.
1: To
2: be honest, I think on both of our counts there was a little bit of sort of puppy dog over enthusiasm. That's yes, right. yes. it was very excited. Because <laughs> you know, it was. I mean, come on, man. What's interesting is, is you, you sort of think about this and you research it and you go, yeah, yeah, she'll tell me. Then you're looking at the guy and you're talking to him, and it's the bloke who produced my generation. I know, <laughs> you know. I know, I know, I know.
1: You know, tunes that defined rock and roll.
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, no fat on it, mate. It's, you know, what an incredible, incredible, incredible career. But like I said, I I love that he was, you know, the fact that he found the band, he put the money up, he did the whole thing. It was like he was, it was all on him,
1: you know? Yeah, yeah. And I love this little sort of presence, sort of this subversive presence of Jimmy Page creeping in and out around the background, putting his guitar here and a bit of guitar there. and It's still shrouded in mystery. And I think, you know,
2: Also, it makes me think, you know, it was like there was this little coven of Americans sort of sneaking around, not sneaking around, but in London, kind yeah. of being quite important movers and shakers. There's him, Joe Boyd, Tony Visconti. And from talking to Shell, it's like they were all completely unaware of each other.
1: Of course. And then I love just the idea of Glyn Johns, you know, just sort of being the sort of T-boy, then the engineer, and then suddenly the superstar <laughs> yeah. working with the Beatles, you know. Anyway, listen, thank you for listening uh, again. It's been another great one. I'm really, you know, I don't know who we've got on next week. We've got someone Someone's good.
2: Yeah, equal, equal, that, that was a big one. That's a that big was... tune for sure.
1: <laughs> You're not allowed <laughs> to say that. That's copyright.
2: <laughs> <laughs> anyway. I invented the Coverdale voice. I was doing it before Coverdale.
1: Oh, let's move on. Um, <laughs> it's Good Night from Me.
2: and It's Good Night from Me.